This is the Chinwag Junkie Podcast. I'm your host, Joy Stone, and welcome to another episode. My first job was actually just sweeping the my dad's um, workshop out because he ran a small business uh, uh, manufacturing racing car parts. So that was the first job. Oh, but nice. actually, uh, I went off studying at university um, uh, and I studied journalism at university. I graduated. Uh, I think it was um, 1999 I graduated and uh, I went off and became a, a, a journalist for a few years. I uh, had a period of time there where I thought um, I was going to go off and become a Catholic priest, but um, there was a, a little thing called celibacy, which probably destroyed that. Uh, and also some family issues, they were against it. Uh, obviously, mum and dad wanted grandkids. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, I... I um, I ended up going and working as a press secretary for a politician for a while. Um, I went and took uh, a few months off and traveled the world, came back and I thought, well, um, I want to do something else with my life. Uh, So I ran for local government, uh, which was um, uh, a very foolish thing to do that resulted in me getting elected to local government at the age of 25. Um, It was was a part-time gig though, right? uh, you made, I think it was $30,000 a year or something, which, uh-huh. is, you know, quite frankly, even back then wasn't enough to, uh, you know, keep, keep you going. So I, um, you know, I was on the lookout for more work, but I eventually decided I was going to uh, start a newspaper. So I did start uh, a newspaper in concert with uh, uh, another another woman who, um, who did the sales sort of side of things. And... It was quite successful for a time while Mackay was in the middle of a mining boom. Uh-huh. Uh, I ended up selling that newspaper to the other woman I'm referring to and uh, uh, I sold it for not much because I had to get out of it because uh, in the interim, all the councils in Queensland got amalgamated and uh, there were new elections and it went from being a part-time job as a local government councillor to a full-time job with a full-time wage. So I ran for re-election and I got uh, elected. Um, And then a couple of years later, uh, I mean, I had thought about it. It's not like I didn't think about it, uh, but um, I had decided not to do federal politics. But a couple of years later, I was pretty much hounded by a few people to put my hand up and and run uh, for the seat of Dawson. Uh-huh. And so the insanity that got me into local government sort of extended a bit further and uh, I ended up nominating for the Liberal National Party and ended up being elected in the election of 2010. Um, and that's like it's uh, politics is you know, what federal parliament and politics has consumed my life from that point on, I guess. Uh, and it really has been a bit of a blur in some respects. Um, but uh, I was re-elected again in 2013. I was re-elected again in 2016. Re-elected again in 2019, and uh, now I'm I'm bowing out. Uh, and you know, whatever the future holds, the future holds. Uh, in that period of time, uh, I met my now wife. Uh, actually, in that period of time, um, I, I you know uh, had a had a girlfriend, and she left. And, uh, then I, uh, I oh, met my wife break. a bit We've later. All been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all, all, all been there. I met my uh, uh, my now wife, um, and we now have a nineteen month old daughter. So uh, that's obviously part of the uh, the next chapter beyond yep. uh, federal parliament. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing, Jai, I mean, a lot of people think these days that politicians, when they leave office, are they're right, they're fine. You know. Uh, I wish I had a dollar for every person that told me I'd be right on the parliamentary pension because if I had a dollar for every person that told me that, I'd have a nice retirement package. Uh, but, um, mate, just like everyone else, we've got to go off and get another job because there's no more parliamentary pensions. That ended back in 2004 for MPs that were elected after 2004. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, I have superannuation like everyone else. So if you were elected before 2004, yeah, you get you you will still get it. And so yeah. that the the reason for that is, I guess, um, that when someone got elected to parliament before 2004, they were elected knowing that this was the 
package that they were going to get. Yeah. And they've actually had to contribute some funds into that uh, into that special sort of retirement account. And because they've contributed the funds, I think legally there's probably no way that the government could say it's over because yeah. you know they've, it's like a contract that's been entered into. But basically that all come to an end. Uh, Mark Latham campaigned on it. Uh, Mark Latham, who was the Labor leader, opposition leader at that time, is now a One Nation member of parliament, which is, uh, you know, such a big shift. Um, yeah. But he campaigned on it and John Howard accepted it. And John Howard uh, was the one who scrapped that for new MPs that were elected after 2004. So, uh, yeah, if you think you're, uh, your MPs on a good wicket for the rest of life. Think, think again. Uh, well, there you go. That that is honestly that is brand new information for me. I didn't know that. I thought it, I thought you know get into get into government and all smooth sailing. Doesn't matter how what you do. <laughs> yeah, 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 for some, for some, mate. For, for some, some for yes. Others, well, that is so a big, <laughs> that is a big difference for some. You know, um, I know. I know we all, and beyond, uh, beyond that, for some, for some, suck up to uh, uh, industry groups and different uh, organisations, and uh, and when they go out, they end up getting parachuted onto the board of some company sure. or um, or being picked up by some university or. Uh, and it or doesn't totally matter how they uh, left government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know these things uh, are gotten by some MPs, but it's the MPs who are. Uh, who are the very polite and prim and proper and diplomatic people who work the system that end up getting those sort of lucrative gigs? Yes, yes. Wow. Um, I seen you went to convoy of Can convoy to Canberra uh, mm -hmm. down the protest down there. Um, Wore the how, shirt. Yeah. How was it? <laughs> how was it? Mate, it was good. It was good. That had to be the biggest uh, protest rally that I've seen in uh, in Canberra in the eleven years that I've been going there as a member of Parliament. Uh, and you know that's um, that sort of view. People might think, "Oh, well, he's completely biased because he's all against these mandates anyway." But that view was shared by uh, a reporter by the name of Chris Ullman, who said that it was the largest gathering in Canberra that he's seen in 30 years that he's been reporting on uh, national politics. So uh, something was going on there, mate. Like there was a lot of people who were coming to to have their voice heard. And um, sadly, the mainstream media and others tried to uh, belittle it, denigrate it, say that it wasn't as big as what it was, say that it was full of fringe dwellers. Well, it was huge. Yeah. I don't know the numbers, but this was huge. If it was a yeah. football crowd, it would have been sold out and then some. Uh, and, and the people who were there were not fringe dwellers. They were people from all walks of life. I met graziers from out the back of New South Wales. I met brickies uh, from Sydney. Mm -hmm. uh, I met uh, nurses. I met doctors. I met policemen. I met ambos. I met teachers. I met people from all walks of life. And sadly, all those people in those professions that I've just mentioned, they had something written on their back. They wrote on their back their profession, so mm -hmm. nurse, mm -hmm. the number of years they've been there, 15 years, and sacked. So they've mm -hmm. all lost their jobs. And Yesterday's their, heroes, uh, right? Yeah, it's like that. It's like mm -hmm. that. You know, once upon a time, it was like, well, these people, they're, they're, they're doing such a good job for our community. And now next thing, oh, these horrible anti-vaxxers, they're crazy. <laughs> Get rid of them. Yeah. Um, well, well, uh, you know, this is just wrong. Uh, you take away someone's livelihood. Uh, it's not just, oh, well, they can go and get another job. What job are they going to get now? What yeah, job? Well, I mean, yeah. you need, you know, there's so many different careers now where the government's requiring vaccination status to actually work in that field. And then there's other professions. Like today, I had Durimple Bay, Durimple Bay Coal Terminal um, write back to me to say that they are still going to proceed with basically a, um, a, a no vaccination, no, no worksite entry policy. Really? So it's basically a no jab, no job policy. And as a the result, BHP's like, got something similar to that yeah, too, they've, they've don't got, they? They've, They've they've let let or about to let seven hundred workers go. Yeah. And down at this Durimple Bay Coal Terminal, uh, they're about to let uh, I think somewhere between eighty and ninety workers and contractors will be affected by that decision, and they'll lose their jobs. These are people who have worked all their life, either studied or worked hard to get where they are. Mm. Uh, they're paying off bills with this. They've got fixed uh, debts, mortgages, get families to feed. 
they're basically now being chucked onto the scrap heap and it is so, so wrong. And I don't understand, I, look, I don't understand why anyone's doing it, but I don't understand why right now any private corporation would move in this direction when the rest of the world is seems to be trending in another direction. And it's obvious, Blind Freddy can see the fact that, you know, COVID's going away. Yeah. Uh, you know, the show the show's over. Yeah. Uh, the audience has nearly all walked out of the theatre. The lights are being dimmed. You know, the curtains are closing, but the actors are still up on the stage playing it out. And you think yeah. to yourself, well, you know, guys, someone needs to get the old, you know, crook and pull them off and uh, say it's, it's over, it's done. We're, we're closing the theatre down. Look, I've always, I've always thought that, you know, allowing people to, to choose to do something or not and then uh, bringing in a mandate for those that choose basically incorrectly, yeah, that's, that's not freedom. And, and I, I like to think that I'm very freedom orientated. Like, I don't care what you do, just don't, don't make me do it as well, right? Uh, um, but, you know, taking away the rights for non-compliance is like, that's how, that's how prison works. Uh, and, and that's definitely, that would be the opposite, the absolute opposite of what, what uh, freedom is meant to be. Right. So that's the way I see it. I don't, I don't, if a, if a private business genuinely wanted their workforce vaccinated, then, you know, you go for it. And, but it's when, when these businesses, uh, they got pushed into it, basically, there's no other way to put it. They got pushed into it. And now the, the craziness of it has got gotten hold and, and, you know, it's going to, we're going to have real problems in the future, both with people's mental, you know, mental issues, you know, there's going to, there's going to be economic issues down the track. I mean, um, every, uh, all Western countries at the moment are, are trending towards inflation. And I can't, yes. I can't say that Australia is going to be immune from that. But yeah, that's that's what I think on that. It's it's, it's it was crazy to start with, and it's still crazy to me. Well, there's another thing with it too, Joe, and that is the fact that um, uh, you know some people might laugh at a Liberal National Party politician, politician pointing this out, but workers' rights, okay, workers' rights. Um, you know, we have now employers having the ability to say to a worker, you must have this particular medical procedure done in order to continue working here. Well, oh, yeah. look, I, I, I get it. I get it where you have gone into a line of work and, and that is the requirement before you've joined. Like for instance, in the meat industry, Q fever, it is an issue. It's an issue that contaminates, uh, you know, can contaminate the meat, can cause issues. So they say, if you want to work here, you have to have the Q fever inoculation, right? The difference is, um, though, sorry, I just got to interrupt yeah. real quick. The difference yeah. is the Q fever vaccine does what the, yeah. the Q fever yeah. vaccine is meant to do, yeah. right? That's it. That's it a big, yeah. That's a, that's a <laughs> yeah. big. That's a big part yeah. of it as well, too. You know, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Completely agreed, mate. But the the principle also is is that uh, you know before you go and work in that industry what you're signing up to. Mm. To then to be working in that industry, and then have the employer say, "Well, actually, in order to keep your job, mm. you now have to have this other jab," um, which you know, yeah, is yeah, got, got got no long term safety data. Uh, that's that's certainly got efficacy issues. Uh, all the rest of it. Um, there's adverse events that are reported as a result of it. Um, you know, the, the question is how legally does that employer have a right to impose that on you when that wasn't part of your original employment conditions? And I think, by, I mean, it's going to take time and it shouldn't take time. Uh, what should happen right now is that governments, uh, state and federal, should act to drop all of this uh, to push for reinstatement of employees and compensation for employees that have lost their jobs as a result of these no jab, no job mandates. But it, it, they won't do that. I don't think they're going to do that. Um, it's going to take time, but eventually a, a, a court of law will probably, or Fair Work Commission will hear something 
and they will crack this nut and it will all be over and it will be over in the blink of an eye, I suspect. Um, but that's not to say that we shouldn't keep the pressure on governments. Oh, for sure. Persuasions. For sure. Uh, my, my message is reinstate and compensate. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, if reinstate and compensate don't work, then litigate. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, I think in a reasonable world, um, you know, uh, lockdowns um, and all the mandates, let's look, all the mandates. As soon as there were studies proving that they didn't work, they should have been dropped. Like there's the yep. John Hopkins um, studies showing that yep. that um, that lockdowns only reduced COVID by 0.2 of a percent. It had ridiculous. Yeah. It had plenty well, of well, other problems exactly. that associated with that. Uh, mask mandates, like there's there's there, it's, it's mainstream news now. It's, you know, it's all over the corporate media news that these uh, surgical face masks don't work. Yeah, yeah Queensland still has a fucking face mask. Like it's coming off. Yes, don't get me until, wrong. Until it's... the fourth, until the fourth of March, mate. That yeah. the virus is magically going to get a message on the fourth of March that COVID nineteen uh, can no longer go near people's mouths. On, yeah. on, because you know it's so virulent today that we need the mask on mm-hmm. to stop it from getting in there. But on the fourth of March, it's getting the memo from the premier that it can, it needs to stay away from the mouth. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's crap, mate. it's crap because yeah. nothing's going to change in the 4th of March. Quite no. frankly, if the 4th of March is a day we can take them off, then today is the day we can take them off. Yeah. Last week was the day we can take them off. Yeah. In fact, probably a year ago was the day that we shouldn't have had to put them on. Yeah. And, and that's the reality. Mate, I completely uh, I get, agree. I get in trouble, I get in trouble for saying masks don't work. I don't get in trouble for saying what I'm about to say here, mask mandates don't work. Mask mandates um, do not work. <laughs> and, and, and I've seen stories in newspapers that right now have become cheer squads for mask mandates. Mm-hmm. And those stories hark back to the first instance of 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 SARS, which is this this is what it is, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, yeah. SARS-CoV-1. Um, SARS-1. Uh, uh, there were people who were um, selling masks and selling masks with certain claims with those masks mm-hmm. and uh and they were, and they were getting in trouble there were uh, there were um crackdowns through trade practices law that basically said if you make a claim about a mask being uh, uh you know working effective. being efficacious and effective yep. against uh this particular virus uh, you're going to be in trouble because it lasted something like 20 minutes and 20 it carried minutes. I believe I know I know what you're talking about there. I, I, I believe it was a hundred and ten thousand dollar fine for each infringement. That's that's and that was only you know that was only a handful of years ago. The narrative's just being flipped on its head. It's crazy. The sad thing is that we've all, uh, I mean, even I've had to comply. I mean, just um, you know, uh, I, I've had to comply like everyone else. They're fining us. And it's just so wrong. I mean, that's why <laughs> if I have to wear a mask uh, these days, it uh, it says this. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. <laughs> so why, why do you think the corporate press went with the narrative that they did? Why do you think that is it? Does the federal government, what am I trying to ask you? Does the federal government own the media or no, is it the other no. way around no <laughs> certainly <laughs> certainly uh well i can't say either way but uh, i mean certainly uh, sadly uh it seems that the uh the, the remit of politics dances to the tune of the mainstream media far far too much mm. um why did the media go that way is a very, very good question that I would like to really know the answer to. I can speculate. I can yeah, speculate well, uh, on that's a number what this show's all about. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess one is the fact that if you dig really deep in terms of who owns a lot of the mainstream media networks mm-hmm. uh, in Australia, yes, but more so in the USA, um, there's links to. Uh, to, to people who also sit on the board of pharmaceutical companies. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to a, a friend about this who, and I, and I said to him, I, I, you know, I just can't, 
fathom what it is. And he said to me, uh, the Australian media have largely followed the US media, which, oh, for sure. which went down this road. It went down this road because um, COVID and the pandemic may have been seen to be politicised in the US, where uh, Donald Trump was advocating certain alternative approaches and yep. not going so hard. And so the media criticised him, you know, a lot for that because the media over there hated Trump. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they took a, oh, no, this is really serious. We've got to lock down and mask up and separate and, you know, vax up and all the rest of it. So they took that approach and the Australian media largely just uh, looked to their American uh, cousins and said, well, we're going to follow what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That probably does sound believable to an extent, although the issue is there's been editorial stances that have been taken. Uh, there's been corporate stances that have been taken. For instance, one media, well, more than one uh Media organisations in this country have vaccine mandates privately imposed upon their workers. So how can you have any sense of of non-bias in your reporting when as a private company, you are requiring your workers to be uh, vaccinated uh, without any government mandate? You've picked the side already, and that actually should be declared by most media organisations when they're reporting on this. They should say, um, you know, our conflict of interest is that we have uh, mandated this in our company. Uh, For sure. Yeah, with it, without without the government pressuring us to do so, because it shows absolutely there's a corporate bias towards this matter. Yeah. But, yeah. Whatever the reason why they've gone down this track, and like, you know, the politicisation, I'll just touch on this again. Yeah, yeah. Even in Australia, it's sort of been seen as a, uh, a left versus right issue when it's not really, it's not at all. Uh, uh, this is uh, about, um, you know, I, I disagree with that with that way that that's been stylized. I've seen many people who are supposedly from the left that have been standing alongside me saying, you know, I've hated you for most of your political career, but now I really like you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because you're saying the same thing as me on this, which is the most important issue, forget the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important because of our freedoms and our human rights. So I, um, I think the mainstream media, though, is decidedly left-wing. They yeah. uh, are decidedly elitist. They think they know better than all the rest of us. And For sure. uh, they, they have uh, decided to take a stance that looks down their nose at the people who are, who are questioning uh, what, what so-called experts have to say in this field. And um, that's incredibly disappointing as someone who was a former journalist because the one thing that you are supposed to do is question, Mm. question and question. You are supposed to interrogate the information that's given to you, not just simply accept it at face value and go after other people who are asking questions. The fact is that so many people are asking questions, I think because a lot of people in the mainstream media have just walked off that field uh, when they were the ones that should have been asking. I give some exceptions, some exceptions. Um, I give an exception to Chris Orman. Mm. He has asked a lot of questions about this. I give an exception to, and I'm talking about Australia here. Um, yeah, yeah. I give an exception to, um, uh, and I, my, my mind's just slipped, there's, a, there's a, a journalist at the Australian, and his name will come to me in a moment, but uh, uh, there's a journalist at the Australian who's done a, a hell of a lot of work in this area. Um, Crichton, Adam Crichton, sorry, I should have remembered that. Uh, Lee Sales has um, slowly, slowly um, decided to speak out against a lot of the stuff that's going on as well. Very interesting, uh, someone from the ABC. Uh, And um, there's probably a few others as well in the mainstream press. But the interesting thing is that, uh, Jai, this has seen this this deficiency, this this, um, lack of questioning, Mm. Like walking off the field that the mainstream media has done has led, I think, exponentially to the rise of alternative media in Australia, whereas before there wouldn't have been yes. much. You've got, you've got videographers like Real Rookshan who, yes. um, you know, he's out there, uh, you know, filming live and showing people another side of the story. So you go from that sort of videography um, work through to... Uh, uh, Rebel News, who have a footprint here, uh, Cauldron Pool, who do a lot of opinion. 
the spectator is putting alternative views up, the good source. Uh, there are now a range of platforms where people have um, alternate news and views that Australians can avail themselves of. And I think that that's very important because uh, we've seen the media trend in the one direction uh, for mm. a long, long while, and particularly around COVID. And what we need is a democratisation of media in this country. So, yeah, so that, uh, more voices are heard than just that that one sort of group think that seems to go on in that in that profession. Um, Rukshan was the, the, the highlight for me because, you know, when he was down there in, in Melbourne and he's, he's not saying anything, he's just showing video oh. of what's happening. He's he, he walks up and, you know, a couple of people, he might ask a couple of questions, but there's no opinion in there. There's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just all from the people on the ground. Right. They say their bit, they're not interrupted. And there's just video and and that's it and he's, there is condemned and, condemned by the yeah. mainstream for it for being a uh, a right-wing radical uh, yeah. white supremacist <laughs> yes yes yeah it's crazy and and yet i remember they they'd done a, a hit piece on him and i think they dragged ari into it as well but uh uh ari uh, Abby, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um i think they dragged him into it as well but you know the reason that Rukshan really stood out for me is for the reasons that I just said. It's not, it wasn't his opinion. It was just what was happening. It was just the video, the raw footage of live streaming onto Facebook. And there was literally tens of thousands of people tuning into that. And I, and I don't think that the, the, the corporate media world liked that at all, at all. No, they don't because they like to just show little snippets like, um, the guy that allegedly punched the horse. Um, uh, yeah, that you know, was And you saw the photos and the videos, and then you saw video, and I don't know whether it was from Rukshan or who it was, but then you saw video from the crowd. I think that was uh, just a it, random phone, but, yeah, I do know the yeah, one you're talking yeah. about. And so it was clear that he didn't punch the mm -hmm. horse. He pushed the horse mm -hmm. because the horse was going to strike him. Yeah. Uh, now, he, he pushed it, not punched it. But we see, and, I, and, I, and I, like someone who's come from the conservative side of things, I can remember um, soci studying sociology, which was such a left-wing subject at university. I liked it, but on one hand, I hated it because it was just so left-wing. And I've been very pro-police, right? And and you know, there's a. I remember this image in the textbook. It was like a cartoon they left from somewhere, and it had. A photo of of uh, well, not a photo. It was a cartoon, as I said, but it had the newspaper headline, and it was um, the guy who was beating the police, you know, bashing the police, and that was the the, the headline. And then uh, what they were showing is the photographer photographing this guy who was pushing back against the police. <laughs> Meanwhile, over here, he was five police officers bashing uh, two people with um, with batons, and and of course. The implication was that oh well the media only films uh, when you know or only takes the photo of uh, the person doing something bad against the authority. They'll never show you the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting angry at that cartoon, thinking that's crap. You know, like you know this is not how it works. Like I can remember having those thoughts. Now it's like uh, twenty five years later. And I'm seeing it in reality. And you're yeah. like, wow, that textbook was right. And guess what? Holy I bet shit. the people that wrote the people who wrote that bloody textbook would probably be cheering on the police. Probably. Uh, you know, probably. Um, yes, uh, probably. For, for, for doing that stuff. And look, uh, I shouldn't say the police because it's not all police, right? I still have great respect for coppers, for men and women that put on the uniform. For the large part, I think they go out to protect us, uh, they go out to service. Uh, but I tell you what, um, there's been a lot of trust and and um, respect that has been lost, sadly, for that profession, because during the course of this pandemic, when there's been peaceful demonstrations in cities and the police have been deployed by governments to deal with those peaceful demonstrations to actually stop them, um, I think that people have just thought, oh, the police have become really politicised now. Uh -huh. and, and, you know, the buck stops in that, obviously, with the government. 
but by the government, the buck sort of stopped with the commissioner. Like right. if I was the commissioner of the Victoria Police and Daniel Andrews or his police minister was to come to me and say, uh, well, boys, there's a, you know, there's a demonstration today in the city. Uh, it's not allowed. We want you to go out and send your people out there to stop it and shut it down. I would have said respectfully, sir, that isn't going to happen. Mm. I will have my men and women out there. And if there's any violence, we'll deal with the violence. Yes. But we're not going to stop any peaceful demonstration. No. We're not going to stop peaceful demonstration. No. That's what he should have said. Instead, completely agree they sent with the you. right squads out there and they, they fired projectiles on people. Um, they did everything that, that, that I would think a police force should not be doing against its own citizens. And so this is part of the problem we've seen over in the US, the rise and rise of the militarization of police forces. And uh, my worry is we're starting to see that here. Well, you I've know, seen the, uh, the heavy armored vehicles, you know, yep. on Rookshan's live feed. <laughs> yep. you know, um, Scary stuff. I mean, yeah, this is definitely. army type vehicles, military type vehicles. Against and, uh, the you know, unarmed population. We see too many videos coming out of the US where there's trigger happy police officers that just shoot first, ask mm. questions later. Mm. I mean, I saw this horrendous video and it just shows you when the police are built up to uh, have a view uh, and it's not the police officer's fault, it's the system's fault. When the police, when it's instilled into the police that you are now in a war against the civilians, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, which I'm sure is how it was drummed into it during the course of this pandemic with the people on the street protesting. For sure. Um, you know, you end up with situations like what I saw where an unarmed guy in a hotel was called out of his hotel room, told to be on the ground, don't move. And if, and if you move in the wrong way, we're going to do something. And he was that nervous, he accidentally moved in the wrong way, he was unarmed, and they riddled him full of bullets. And that's the sort of outcome that happens from, from a, a system taking an us versus them approach uh, to policing. And it shouldn't be allowed. It should not be allowed in this country, but we're seeing it creep in. We're seeing a lot of things creep in that uh, have never happened in this country. Uh, and I'm afraid we're gonna see more and more of it unless people stand up. Uh, invasion of privacy, uh, rights being whittled away. Um, you know, the fact is that bulk of the population, Jai, have, have, have said to governments pretty much that they're happy to sacrifice uh, the liberties and freedoms that, you know, over 100,000 men in this country died for in world wars, and uh, they're happy to sacrifice it for a little bit of security. What do you know about the, what do you know about the digital ID? Yeah, I know a bit about it. Um, I know that it's bad. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, that, uh, it, that out of, out of all of the COVID regime that is i feel like the one thing they're going to try and hold on to and i don't mean so, vax pass i mean it's yeah. future iteration where you know your your complete health records tied to this thing and and your bank account could be tied to this thing and and you know it sounds like you know conspiracy or whatever but once the technology and the infrastructure is there, it's not hard to make those things a reality. And judging by the last two years, it seems like at least at a state level, they'd be willing to do that. And once upon a time, uh, particularly Queensland, when J.B. Elke-Peterson was the Premier, the people criticised for his sort of human rights approaches and cracked down on marches. But I tell you what, he fought like blue blazers against the idea of an Australia card. Yeah. Uh, and you, you and I are both too young to recall that. But, uh, you know, there was a proposal that there was going to be a national identification system that have a card. All your details will go onto the card. The government will know everything about you from this card. And uh, people went off their heads about it and it got dropped. Well, now we're going back to that. Uh, but it's even worse because this is a online this is a digital identity card mm. of which so much data can be captured more than would just be on a on a you know an id card so much data is going to be captured perhaps even biometric data um you know who knows uh and and who is it going to be shared with and what for what purposes is this going to be used who has the uh, control why are we going to have it? it um who who in fact asks for this i mean i've been a politician for 11 years now yeah i can guarantee you that not once not one day 
Has anyone stopped me in the street, sent me an email, <laughs> phoned me, come to my office and said, George, I want you to introduce a national digital identification system. Yeah. It just hasn't happened. So who's pushing it? Yeah. Who's pushing it? And I'll tell you who's pushing it. Who's pushing it is the World Economic Forum. That's mm. just simply a fact. The World Economic Forum has pushed for a digital identification system to be rolled out around the world. Um, and uh, with these sort of things, it comes uh, with loss of privacy. It doesn't matter how many protections you are going to build into this digital identification platform. Uh, the, the, those protections, there will be workarounds, there will be breaches, and they eventually will be watering down of those protections. So if well, there is not one only... fight, you're right, Jai, one fight we've got to be in to stop, it is this yeah. bloody national ID system. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's all of those things, absolutely. But at the bare minimum, look at the census site, come census time. The government can't keep that that site open while everyone logs on and tries to fill out their census. And not even everyone does it online. You know, imagine if there's 25 million people all with this digital ID and, and there'd be hundreds, if not thousands of transactions happening, millions really, millions and millions mm. of transactions happening all at the same time. There's no way that it's going to be stable at just just at the the very surface level of it it's never going to well, work a huge issue with potential hacking of that yeah, data so yeah. uh, i don't know how they're going to do it but look the good news is uh and there's two bits of good news here um one i had a conversation last week uh, with someone senior in the ministry that's looking after this uh, particular uh, area of digital identity and they told me the government's not moving forward on it uh, at least Excellent. before the election so, so this is federal uh, government but let, 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 let me be clear at least before the election right uh -huh, okay uh -huh. so, so 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 there is no chance this side of june or july we're going to see that legislation move forward yeah um now now after the election is a different matter okay yes so there's, there's two things that come after that we need people in the senate to protect us from this, uh, I am I, firm on that. Whether that doesn't matter what political party they're in, I want people in the Senate, uh, whether they're bloody Labor, LNP, Independent, Crossbenchers, minor parties, whatever, they're going to be there and they're going to be against this stuff. Uh -huh. uh, and, and, and you think, well, there's no hope if the government wants it. Let me tell you about a little something called the $10,000 cash ban. So there was a proposal going back a few years oh, ago yeah. that they were going to ban transactions of cash uh, over the $10,000 limit. Now, uh, I was against this and so are a lot of other people. Now, against it for many, many reasons, uh, you know, the potential precursor to the introduction of a digital, uh, a digital transaction scheme uh, where, um, you know, our transactions could be controlled, uh -huh. uh, getting rid of cash altogether. All of that stuff is where this potentially could lead to. But even just at the low level, um, cash, you know, a $20 note, a $10 note, or a 50 cent coin or a dollar coin, that's legal tender. Yep. You know, that's why the coins carry the image of the queen on the back of it. Uh, the notes say uh, it's been issued by the Reserve Bank of Australia, you know, uh, under under direction of the Crown. So, so this is legal tender. This is what you and I trust in to be able to be sure that um, we're not getting gypped, that, you know, it's a piece of paper, a piece of bloody plastic or a bit of bit of metal. It's probably completely worthless, to be quite honest. But we and both it's backed trust by something. It. It's meant to be backed we, by we, something, right? Exactly. We <laughs> both trust in it that that is going to be worth the paper it's written on or worth the plastic or the, the, the metal it's, 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 it's imprinted on. So, um, but it's legal tender, and if you abolish legal tender for any transaction, doesn't matter the value of it, you've effectively said that's no longer legal tender for that, mm -hmm. and something else now must become legal tender. So what's the legal tender? Well, it's an electronic transfer, and that's owned by a private corporation called a bank, mm -hmm. um, and it could be a foreign bank. You know, So here's the government effectively legislating to say that that all legal, trend, all legal tender over $10,000 has now got to be in the hands of a private corporation that's going to make money off that transaction. Well, that's crap. It um, definitely is know, crap. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's now become, scarily enough, the, the future that we're having where big government and big business seem to 
get fused together for the benefit of both of them, control mm. and profits. Mm. And, uh, and that scares me a lot. But, How do we... Uh, getting back to the $10,000 cash ban, just quickly, yep, 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 uh, right. we opposed it. We, we went against it. There are a lot of people who were saying they didn't support it. At the end of the day, it got all too hard. And the government dropped it. So Good. these things can be broken. You yes. know, we can stop the national ID system, but we just need persistence and we need a lot of voices. Yeah, yeah, we do. We need to definitely get more people on board with that. Um, so I was going to ask you something, but I've forgotten. So anyways, I'm <laughs> sorry, mate, I talked too long. No, no that's, <laughs> a, that's completely okay. National ID, cash ban, where have we gone? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Can't I don't know. Okay. Um, your censorship bill. How's uh, it going? Social media, big tech. How, how uh, is I, it going? Has it been received by the public, other members in Parliament? Uh, is it? Is it? How's it going? Well, I had uh, I had two other members in Parliament that were uh, keen to second it. Um, uh, the member for White Bay, Lou O'Brien, wanted to second it, but Bob Catter jumped to his feet, and the member for Kennedy and got there first. So uh, oh. you know, it had some had some support on the day. Um, look, the reality is, I'm not going to gild the lily. It will just simply sit on the table now um, until the wind up of parliament mm -hmm. because it needs support of the government to bring it on for a vote and it won't get that support but the point was to show that indeed a a law can be drafted that mm -hmm. deals with this issue and this issue is an important issue because it's about censorship and it's about stifling free speech it's about stifling uh, philosophical social cultural and political discourse in this country, uh, these social media platforms that are all run by foreign uh, corporations, uh, mm -hmm. that they have now become the new town square where ideas and exchanges go on. Yeah. And so for a private foreign corporation to be in control of what's said on that platform, it's very, very dangerous. Uh, I have no problems if it's unlawful, right? If it's unlawful, yeah. take it off. If it's uh, if it's uh, incitement to violence, take it off. But when if it's, it's a, a challenging threat, idea, take it off. If it's a challenging idea, that's a different different. There is a very big difference. It's been said between hate speech and speech that you hate. Yes, uh, that's perfect. You know, I like that. If you are going to say, uh, "I want Joyce Dallin killed," uh, that's unlawful. If I yeah. say, "Joyce Dallin, I don't like his beard," that's an opinion. That, you know? you'd be wrong too um, <laughs> yeah i would be wrong because both their beards are magnificent yeah um so uh <laughs> you know uh and this, this is a thing that the big tech uh, let me give a, a real explicit example the prime minister of this country had his posts removed mm. from wechat mm. which happens to be a chinese uh, social media site that uh, is under the control, obviously, of the Chinese Communist Party. That happened in our country, though, mm -hmm. taken down in our country. So, so how is it? Uh, I mean, I think there was outrage when that happened. We can see how bad that is. We haven't acted on it, though. But if we can see how bad that is, we should act on it. And if we can see how bad it is when WeChat does it, we should also see how bad it is when Twitter does it, or yes. Facebook does it, yes. or YouTube does it. Uh, and they should all be dealt with. And my bill was saying uh, that, there, that this is an elite, this should be an illegal act. If it's lawful communication, it should be allowed to happen on a platform. Um, and people run the argument, oh, they're private corporations, they can do what they want. Yeah, 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 they're private corporations, but hang a tick, they're not publishers. They say yeah. they're not publishers, they're platforms. And because they're not publishers, they're not subject to defamation cases. And uh, if they want to be publishers and curate their content and censor things and edit things, then they've got to be liable for defamation as well. They can't have it both ways. Yeah. So, so if they're a platform, they're a platform. Allow every bit of free speech apart from that which is unlawful. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that's what the bill basically said. And it gave you and I and everyone else the outlet to go off to uh, a government agency, Australian Media and Communications Authority, and say, I've been censored. Here's what happened. They would have a look and they would give the, um, the the platform 24 hours or 48 hours, I think it was, to remedy the breach. And if they didn't didn't remedy it, like put the person's post back or put yep. the person back online, yep. uh, then, that, then that company would be fined a million dollars. Seems fair. <laughs> to me, it does. I, I don't, I'm, I'm completely with you all there. Um, you know, 
like you said, they are they are the 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 town square. They're the they're the soapbox, if you will, of of today's age. And you know, it'd be the same as if Telstra decided to cut off your phone or censor your phone. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That you have just said the most insightful analogy that there is. This is now a form of communication. And would we accept, because you and I uh, are having a conversation, I'm on Telstra, by the way, I don't know what you're on, but I'm yeah, on Telstra. Yeah, same, same. But, but, but uh, okay, so if Telstra didn't like what we were talking about right now, would it be acceptable if Telstra was able to reach in and sever the communication link, sever the internet line? If you now, look at it from the social media standpoint, yes, it is, which is well, crazy. Well, it's, it's, it's not, I want to make that clear, it's definitely not, but... That's but I think that, most Australians would say that no. Telstra should not be able to yeah. do that. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so, absolutely. Why, so, so why is Facebook allowed to do yeah. it? Why yeah. is Twitter allowed to do it? Why is YouTube yeah. allowed to do it? Completely Sorry. agree. So, all right, um, I'm going to let you go, but thanks, Jeff. How, how do we with how do we how do we get out of what we're in now like the all the all the crap that's going on oh actually actually before you go um the cho's extension and power as a queenslander Uh, what do you reckon i knew it was coming i knew it was coming (laughs) yeah and and in fact it was so bizarre because i didn't i was on the road yesterday and i didn't get the news until too late and people were asking me questions and i said to them well you know these emergency powers run out on the 26th of march so I'm not sure what they're going to do, but what I'm worried about is they're going to introduce a bill like Daniel Andrews did. Mm-hmm. And then someone goes, no, they've announced it this morning. And I went, what? And they had a look. Yeah, okay, here we go. So they're saying they're going to extend these powers until October. Mm. And I bet my bottom dollar there's going to be several extensions that they allow themselves in there. Um, but, mate, the show is over. As I said, you know, the audience are walking out. If, if not, they've nearly all left. The lights are being turned off. The curtains are being drawn but the actors are still playing this out on stage. Mm. It all needs to stop. I mean, Mm. COVID is now a fizzer. It is Mm. a complete and utter fizzer. Um, We know what it is. We've got people like the former Deputy Chief Health Officer, uh, Nick Coatesworth, Mm. who's out there saying that this variant of COVID we've got, um, Omicron is is no worse than the the flu. Mm. No worse than actually, not the flu, the common cold. So, so if this is the case, and it is, the stats show it. I mean, the ABS data that was released the other day that showed a number of things, uh, including that only about 83 Australians without any underlying health conditions mm. actually died of COVID-19. It showed that overall there was something like 2,600 deaths over the course of about 18 months, whereas in a pandemic, in, a, in, in, in an ordinary year, um, uh, there's about two two thousand or so people who die of influenza and pneumonia. So ordinary ordinary twelve month year, but over two thousand die of influenza and pneumonia over the course of over eighteen months. There are something like two thousand six hundred that died of COVID nineteen. Yeah, very comparable. Very very comparable. And then you look at the age of deaths. Something like uh, eighty one, I think it was for men. I could be wrong on that number. Uh, might be 83, but whatever it was, there was a particular age of death, average age of death for COVID-19 victims, if I can call them that, for men, and it was about 85.1 for women. Uh And then if you have a look at the average life expectancy for men, it was exactly the same as the the number um, for for COVID deaths. Uh And the average life expectancy for women was 85. So those women who died of COVID-19 were actually getting 0.1 of a year longer to live on average than most Australian women. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that any death's not tragic. It is. No, it is. yeah. And that's, and that's another media thing. Perspective. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Of course, oh, you, you want grandma to die. No, I yeah. don't want grandma to die. I mean, but you've got to put things in perspective. Um, a headline that a 90-year-old woman has died is not news. The headline should be, a 90-year-old woman is still alive. I mean, that's the headline. Mm. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but, but we, we've, we've, we've lost the plot on this. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, there's two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Yeah. And once you get past a certain age, you know, eventually you're going to die yeah. uh, of old age. 
um, or, or, or pneumonia, which is what a lot of old people die of. In fact, um, I'm told by some doctors that pneumonia used to be referred to as the old person's friend because they'd become weak and bedridden and, um, you know, flu season would come along and then mm-hmm. they'd die, they'd pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of time to go and meet the maker. Um, and that'll happen to us all, you and I included. Uh, mate, I've lost my track here. Uh, no, that's uh, but that's I, I, we're talking about how it's all going to end. How yes, it's all going yes. to end is um, unless unless the media and the politicians and all the sort of globalist groups out there can manufacture some other uh, scare, fear campaign uh, crisis uh, and spook us all back under the donor. Um, this thing will have to logically and rationally end because people are seeing it for themselves. It may take time. There's probably going to be some more destruction done. It's probably going to be people's lives that are impacted by the continuation of, of, of having lost their job and lost their career or profession. Uh, but this thing will come to an end. But, mate, what we can't do is be silent about it and just hope it comes to an end. Mm. Uh, only because we are speaking out and saying this is crap, enough's enough, and we're ridiculing the situation, I believe, are some of these restrictions coming to an end. For sure. I, I, th- I think so too. Like they're not going to publicly say that on, you know, seven nightly news about the freedom rallies and all this sort of thing, having a, a profound impact on, on government restrictions and whatnot. But I do believe they are changing. Like imagine yeah, if, yeah. imagine if everyone just said, yeah, okay, this is what we're doing. Every, mm-hmm. Everywhere would be like Canada at the moment and it would never change. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> But anyways, moving on to the next thing, the next thing in the cycle is, uh, you know, Russia. So, uh, yes. you know, there's always, always something new and perhaps uh, uh, the only good thing about the whole uh, the Russia situation will be that it bloody gets COVID off the news and out of our lives um, mm. so that we, well, not COVID, but the government restrictions around COVID so mm. that we can move on and, and be free again. I, I really do hope that's going to be the case. And I hope that all of those people who've lost their work, they get it back they get reinstated and compensated for their loss yeah Yeah. me too well thank you very much for coming on i really appreciate it and uh yeah i hope to talk to you soon oh and 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 cheers mate where do we where sorry sorry (laughs) where do we find you where do do we find where do you find it um, all of them, all of them, mate. I've got the long list up on my Substack, nationfirst.substack.com. Yep. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Parler, Gab, Twitter, um, Getter, uh, Rumble, uh, yep. Telegram, all of them, all of yep. them. Uh, Me too. Find the full list there. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And you've got a podcast as well. Conservative I one. I do, mate. Conservative one. Yep. yep. And you can find uh, those details uh, where I just by going to your favourite podcast uh uh, outlet and type in conservative one and it's still up there hasn't been censored yet brilliant excellent thank you very much